Hi, and welcome to Off Grid, where we have once again solved a cryptic crossword, from which we're going to tell you our three favourite clues and explain the mechanics of how they work as well. If you're not a crossword solver, though, don't panic, because for most of the episode, we're going to be waffling on about other stuff, which we found interesting as inspired by a word or two that we found in the crossword. On the other hand, if you do fancy having a go at the same one we did, it was this time the Independence Puzzle number 10915 from Wednesday, October the 6th, 2021, which is by Tease, and we'll put a link to it in the show notes. Uh, otherwise, as Void says, you can just put your feet up because we've already done the heavy lifting for you. That's me, Dave. And me, Void. Welcome. Now, as well as all that waffle, we will be having a short general knowledge quiz also inspired by some words in the puzzle. And that quiz will be provided to us by, as ever, General Knowledge. Welcome back to the podcast, General. Oh, well, thank you very much. And of course, it's lovely to be here. Always a pleasure. So, before we go any further, listener, we will tell you our favourite clues. So, General, start us off with your favourite clue, please. Okay, I had a few favourites, but I've chosen seven down, which is persistent trouble, tough, all after first round. And that's a five-letter word. And Dave? Uh, I liked 24 down, which said, last of liquid, tip it down sink. It's a five-letter word also. Uh, And how about you? I went for four across, which is, one not still searching for hobby question mark which is eight letters all right you can let those rattle around in your brains listener while we start rabbiting on about other things and we'll come back to the clues and explain them later but first general which word in the puzzle gave you some inspiration to talk about something well i had a look at uh, 2913 this is the the long solution. The clue was this hors d'oeuvre gets the spirits up and the answer is angels on horseback. And um, I don't know if you noticed that there is an alternative answer to this because devils on horseback would fit actually just as well. In either case, you're getting a spirit. And I have to admit, when I solved the puzzle, I went for devils as, as the answer. So I was a little bit put out when I found that I, it was it was actually ambiguous. Now, in that case, I don't think that was deliberate. Uh, but he did make me think of puzzles where there are two solutions by design. There was the famous one from a few years ago in the New York Times, where the, one of the answers was, was either Clinton elected or Bob Dole elected. And the trick was that it was published on the day before the, elect, the presidential election in which Clinton was returned to office. And the clue was this particular answer is tomorrow's headline. A lot of people... Th- have called that America's favourite crossword puzzle because it, you could solve it either way. And uh, there's uh, another example that appeared on Alan Connor's blog in The Guardian on our referendum day in 2016, where the answer, one of the answers was either Britain to leave European Union or Britain stays in European Union. And uh, the idea of having two meanings is quite strange in a crossword. It's all, it's almost something that we, we try to avoid because it feels illogical, but it, it's actually well accepted in other areas. So if you can think of uh, art forms like literature or uh, 
how many TV programs have you watched where the detective sees two different versions of events, or I may destroy you, where we see alternative reconstructions of a single event based on a faulty memory. Um, in visual arts, I was at a, a Ben Nicholson exhibition this week where he draws abstract, semi-abstract pictures of still life. A curve could be the side of a glass, it could be the neck of a bottle, or it could be a glimpsed chimney through a window in the background. So all of these things... Ben Nicholson, one of the vorticists. He was kind of... He was around at the time of the vorticists. Um, he kind of developed his own style from there, where he, he went into these these images, which were increasingly pared down. He, he loved collecting porcelain and glassware, so his images often have these very simple curves, which have be, have been overused since then by marketers who've, who've latched onto the idea that a, a glass held upright is rather like a bottle held next to it. The two mm. curves complement each other. But he, he was doing playing with these ideas in the 30s and the 40s until but, he became increasingly abstracted into something which could mean almost anything, but did mean something because he always started with a, with a, a real link back to the real world. So the, this idea of playing with our perception is, is quite well accepted in the arts. And it made me think about the, the Schrodinger's cat paradox, which takes it into another another area where the whole idea of being ambiguous it becomes a, a very serious um, physical, almost a metaphysical idea. So, I mean, this was the paradox that he produced in 1935. Now, this was at a time when scientists had got a pretty good idea that matter did some very strange things. And the smaller you got and the harder you looked, the stranger things behaved. There were these experiments where people would fire little uh, particles at uh, a slit in in foil and see what happens. And they found that particles would behave pretty much as if they went through both slits, as if they were just this amorphous cloud of matter. And it was only when you really tried to look at them and, and find out what they were doing, they suddenly seemed to decide, oh, well, I'll just go through one slit or the other. So it was, it was as if the looking the scientists felt was creating the choice that these things made in the real world, and which seems was, completely nuts, of course. Which, is, which obviously is nuts. It has to. It has to be nuts. And yet, there was this um, absolutely genuine uh, interpretation that, that ran for for quite a while that it was the observing that was causing the phenomenon. Well, this the the, the idea that the observing caused the change in it. That was Heisenberg as well, wasn't it? That's the uncertainty principle. Yeah. Well, it's very, very much past the uncertainty principle. I mean, he's, he's went even further than that in saying that things are fundamentally not observable, that if you try and force uh, a, a particle into a very tiny space, it will respond by in, increasing in energy so that as you try to, as you try to, uh, pin down something in one way, it becomes completely unpinned downable in another way. Um, like putting a cat into its carrying case. Well, now, to the vet. <laughs> as mentioning cats, so um, he had this idea, and we're, we're back to Schrodinger now, that that you could try to investigate what was going on with this this view of of how quantum mechanics works. So he he suggested. You imagine that you've set up some sort of apparatus, there's something going on, a, a proton going through a slit. It doesn't really matter what it is. 
but you arrange it so that it could do one of two things and one thing triggers off a mechanism that releases poison maybe into the box. The box has a cat in it and you don't know what's happened because you've not observed it. You observe it by opening the box. When you open the box, the cat is either alive or dead. But you know that that whatever it is has happened while the box was closed. So all that time the cat has been both alive and dead at the same time. So he proposed this as this, this paradox that if you believed that way of looking at, at this thing that the scientists had found was happening in the world, you must believe that a cat can be both alive and dead at the same time. Now, he didn't believe that. He, he, he was winding them up because he wanted them to see that it, it was a bad way of looking at the world. And the, the, the resolution of it is pretty straightforward. You just say that if you want to talk about somebody observing something, well, if you're the cat, you've pretty well observed it if you've, got, if you've been surrounded by poison gas. So there's the observation. And so and this is, you know, this is, this is like solving a crossword. You've, you, when, when you start solving a crossword, your mind is full of lots of ideas of, is it an anagram? Is it a hidden word? What's, what's going on in there? You have to allow yourself to have, for all these things to be possible, while another part of your brain tries to work out what's the meaning of the clue. And somehow these things, this, this cloud of ideas coalesces into a solution. And what I was solving a, a crossword earlier today and I was putting together all the elements and I, and I came up with a, a string of letters for the possible answer and I'd come up with legiant and I thought legiant that's that's not a word I know it looks like it could be a French word though is it is it legend it must it must be legiant so I looked it up and of course legiant or legion is not a word at all and I just got one thing in slightly the wrong place and it was actually elegant <laughs> which is also an anagram of neat leg yes as it should be <laughs> a, a neat leg would be elegant yeah very good and uh, yeah, so I, I, you know, I think these it's people have called this kind of crossword a Schrodinger puzzle because they have two possible solutions, and in fact, two sets of solutions because all the interlocking words must have two different answers as well. In each case, only one set of answers will work together. Once you put all those answers together, you have one of the two possible solutions for the whole puzzle. Um, and but it's the action of solving it. You could have one correct answer from solution set A with a crossing word answer from solution set B and that that, that will throw you into complete confusion. Or scupper your solution. And of course until until you've until you find that um, you are in a Schrodinger position with with any puzzle because you don't know you don't know what's happening. Only the crossword setter can see the truth. Only the, the crossword setter sees all the possibilities that then sees the truth that that, that you discover. So you are the mortal, the crossword setter is God. Yeah. And, and of course, in this specific grids example, it was only when you were able to solve 24 down or 17 down that that resolved for you which of your angels or your devils it was in, in, in 29 across. It, it, it did, which is, I don't know, I, I, th I find it a bit unsatisfying because... You can't. You it, can't it should solve be solvable on its own. Yeah, it should be solvable on its own. So it's it's a little bit like having, um, if I if I if I keep going with the physics analogy, it's a bit like having a compound which is stable until you, I don't know, do something perfectly normal with it, like expose it to to the air, and then it suddenly bursts into flames. That would be a bit annoying if you just created a stable compound <laughs> and it didn't last very long. Yeah. 
course, creating one of these Schrodinger puzzles is a very neat trick because not only do you have to be able to fill the crossword almost completely and then finish it off completely in two different ways which works but then you also have to write a clue for at least one answer which can be solvable in two different ways so they're a cunningly devilish beast well the, the um, one in the, the new york the new york times uh, where, where the answer was either clinton or bob dole the words which crossed the b for bob dole which or the C for Clinton would have to start with either B or C. And in one case it was bat, and the other case it was cat. And his clue for that was... I think it was Halloween animal or something. Black Halloween animal. Yes, there yeah. you go. Uh, so very nicely done, very, very elegant. It is really annoyingly difficult to try and find cryptic clues that work both ways because you have to have an anagram that works two ways or... Uh, in the case in that one that was in uh, on the referendum day, the the long clue was two anagrams, and in either case, in one case, the first part of the clue was an anagram, and the second part sounded like a definition and an anagram indicator. And if vice the, versa for the other. Vice versa, the first half sounded like yeah. a, a definition and anagram. The second half was the anagram fodder. Uh, actually, on the on the subject of the uh, the Schrodinger's cat in the in the uh, crossword, I did have a clue of my own, which was what may decay in Schrodinger's experiment: a cat! Exclamation mark. Four letters. To which the answer was atom or a tom, because both the atom and the cat might well decay in the experiment. Well, there's a 50-50 chance that they will, anyway. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> um, I think that's a great clue. Cool. All right, Dave, tell us your clue again. Read it to us once more and then tell us how it works, please. Right. We had 24 down and it was last of liquid, tip it down sink. Five letters. This was a basic charade clue. The definition part was sink. Uh, last of liquid indicated the last letter of the word liquid, so D. And the reason I chose it, and the bit that I liked, was that tip it down indicated rain. So a very common colloquial phrase for to rain. What's the weather like? Oh, it's absolutely tipping it down. But repurposed for the surface meaning of the clue to suggest pouring dregs down the plug hole. I thought that was rather neat. Yeah, nice sneaky bit of misdirection. I had that one on my list as well. A nice little phrase, yeah. I think we all had it in our in our shortlist, didn't Possible. we? Possible, yeah. And, and it's it's funny as well, you know. It's, it's fun, it's... yeah. Anyway, uh, Void, what did you pick out as potentially interesting from the puzzle? Well, at first, nothing was really leaping out at me, so I thought, well, I'll, I'll go away and come back to it with with fresh eyes. And when I came back, I looked at the answer Thoreau which is the surname of the author Henry David Thoreau, who most famously, his most famous work was a book called Walden, which is about a man who goes off to live in the woods on his own to just get away from everything. And I suddenly realised that, hang on a sec, I'm actually reading a book at the moment that's quite similar to that. 
it's a book about a young girl who runs away from her family to go and live amongst nature that she loves. So, have either of you guys heard of the book The House Without Windows? I can't say I have. No. Yeah, well, it was completely new to me as well. I'd never heard of it until quite recently when one of the QILs retweeted an article about its author, which I went and read and thought, oh, she sounds interesting. So have you heard of Barbara Newhall Follett? Afraid I haven't heard of her either. Mm. <laughs> also, she's uh, not so well known these days. She was born in 1914 and she was a homeschooled child from New England. Okay. And when she was aged four, apparently she demanded of her parents to be told all about typewriters and, and how they worked. And skipping forward a bit, just after her ninth birthday, she finished writing her debut novel. All right. One of these child prodigies. Uh, child prodigies, yes. Uh, this novel was then promptly destroyed in a house fire very soon afterwards. Oh, so dear. So then had to go and rewrite it. Uh, and it was eventually published when she was 12, and it got critical acclaim. And she became a minor celebrity as a Wunderkind. And I found the novel online, because it is available now, and I, I thought I'll read it and see what it's like. And in a way, it is quite childish in some respects, because, I mean, for example, when she goes off to live in in the wilderness the issue of how she gets any food to live off is sort of glossed over oh i dug up some roots and there is some somewhat quirky names of characters in there so there's this epasip the raspains and the eigleans so it's, it's all a bit a little bit odd in some respects but i did find that the writing was was very well accomplished especially from a nine-year-old and in some ways, it reminded me of some of Oscar Wilde's fairy tales. So I I was intrigued to maybe want to find out a bit more about her. And she's written uh, some other stuff as well. Her next novel is called The Voyage of the Norman Dee, which was about the journey of a Nova Scotia schooner. And she wrote it after she went on a 10-day trip on a Nova Scotia schooner. All right, so right, you, so write what you know, at least. Yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, she was 13 at the time of this trip. But she this, did have a chaperone. This kind of child prodigy novelist thing does remind me of uh, Daisy Ashford, The Young Visitors. Do you know that one? Oh, it rings a faint bell. Go on. Yeah, that's another one. She was, I think she was nine when she wrote that, and... Uh, that's what you were saying about odd character names. Uh, that I think that suffers from that as well. I think the lead character is something like Mister Saltina. Um, anyway, I hope all of these character names are are anagrams of something meaningful. They do they? sound like they might be, don't yeah, they? Like, yeah. like like half of Nabokov's characters are anagrams of each other. All right. <laughs> anyway, anyway, sorry. Carry on. Uh, well, I, I read a bit more about her, and she had an interesting young life. Yeah, after her first novel, she went on travels with her mother to various countries. There was a family split, so she ended up having to get a job to pay the bills when she was uh, 16, I think, mm. uh, whilst at the same time working on her writing out of hours. 
She went on a long hike in the Appalachians. Uh, she had a trip to Spain and Mallorca, both of which served as inspiration for her writings. She took up modern dancing. She did get married, but her marriage floundered and she walked out of it shortly after which she completely disappeared. Ooh. Never to be seen again. And Sounds they, like source material for somebody else's novel to me. Well, yeah. I mean, the, the sad ending is that uh, there was a body discovered in 1948 and subsequent detective work um, many years later looks like it was Barbara's body that was found. And it seems likely that she committed suicide age just 25 when she was all alone in the woods in the middle of the natural world that she loved so much. Wow. Which is which is quite sad. I yeah. should credit the website Foxolia, which is where I got a lot of this information, which is a site about Barbara run by her half-nephew, Stephen Cook. And he has written a biography of her called A Life in Letters. And he's also reissued another one of her novels along with some of her short stories called Lost Island, which I've ordered this afternoon. So that's in the post to me. And hey. Hopefully I'll like some more of her stuff. Very good. So, General, let's yeah. uh, let's Go try on. and find some, some happier notes to uh, walk off to and tell us your clue that you chose. All right. Um... Well, I had chosen Sudden Down, Persistent Trouble, Tough, all after first round. So that was a five-letter solution. So this was one that I th- where I thought the setter had um, gone a little bit further into the possibilities of clue writing. So what's happening here is you have to find a synonym for the word tough. That's in the middle of the clue. And um, that suggests hardy. But you don't leave it at that. You then have to do something else with it. So rather unusually in a, in a, a crossword puzzle, you've actually got to take two steps in the unknown. And the second step is you've got to pull Hardy apart. So all after first round is telling you to take all of this word that you've just guessed, Hardy, take all of it after the first letter and turn that round. So you have H plus the reverse of RD, which gives you H, Y-D-R-A, it's a hydra, and that suggests the definition, which is persistent trouble. It's also a slightly a slightly offbeat definition that uh, a hydra is this many-headed monster in Greek mythology, which then, in a more general sense, can be seen as a, a symbol of persistent trouble because you would hack away at one head of the hydra and another one would grow back in its place. And while you, that one was growing back, the other 99 would come and try to bite you. So it's a it's a particularly graphic type of trouble. Uh, I don't think I've heard of anyone saying that they're grappling with with a hydra. Well, Mark Boland did sing that the teeth of the hydra are upon you. Okay, there you go. Then that's there. Good, 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 good cultural reference. Maybe that's what um, what Tease was thinking of. Dave, what do you want to tell us about? Well. Bearing in mind all the reference to the angels and horseback and dev- uh, devils on horseback earlier on with the angels and devils, it all, it all ties in, everything ties in with everything else. It's kind of fundamental <laughs> interconnectedness of all things here. Um, I picked the word symmetry, which was at 28 across. Now, 
I don't know about you two, but I have this tendency when I see uh, a field of artistic endeavour that I think is cool to sort of say, well, I wonder if I could do that and have a go at it. <laughs> um, and usually the answer turns out to be well sort of a bit, uh, but it keeps me amused bouncing around from one fad to another like Mr. Toad, you know. That's probably what got me started trying to do set crosswords as well, but... Um, Another couple of realms like that that both feature symmetry in them heavily are ambigrams and Escher-style tessellation. Now, what do either of you know of either of those fields? Oh, well, much, much loved by Hofstadter as, a, as an illustration of Ooh, mental agility. This, this is all tying in. This is all tying in. We'll come to Hofstadter in a minute, yeah. Yeah, so um, Escher liked to uh, create some drawings. You'll have seen some probably where there's a drawing and it looks at first like it's a picture of a whole bunch of lizards. But then if you look in between the lizards, there are butterflies or something like that. And, and the whole plane is completely made up of lizards and butterflies. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, he's sort of known for two types of prints, Dutch printmaker, known for two types of prints, and that's one of them, tessellated uh, mostly animals and sometimes people and things like that, and also for the kind of impossible structure lithographs like the, um, it's called ascending and descending with the with the monastery with the monks walking around the staircase at the top, but it continually goes up or it yeah. continually goes down, depending on which, which way you go. And most um, people will have seen these images, we'll even if they're not familiar with who they were by. Yeah, be- because they're used a lot on book covers and record covers and so on. Um, uh, and what about ambigrams? Do either of you know about ambigrams? Much? Well, very fearsome things to, to create. Uh, pieces of uh, well, definition. Um, a pair of words written in such a way that... Uh, turning the page upside down reveals one word or the other. So a, a little bit like a, a verbal equivalent of those things that Victorians did with two two silhouettes or simple portraits, caricatures, where you have a, a man in a top hat. If you turn, hold the page one way up and turn it the other way up and it suddenly becomes a young woman holding a basket or something like that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. But, 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 done, but done with words, usually with a very fancy... Um, Fancy lettering style. full lettering style, yes. Yeah. Well, both of those endeavours are things that I've had a go at, and they're worlds that very nearly overlapped, but not quite. So, strap yourselves in. <laughs> Ambigrams, in their simplest form, began begin with what are now referred to as natural ambigrams, which is essentially words or phrases that use rotationally symmetrical letters anyway, something like noon in capitals or swims and so on. Um, so those have existed for ages, and Escher was aware of them. Uh, he wrote in his diary in the 60s an anecdote about a swimming teacher who decides he's going to stop giving classes on Monday so he puts up a sign for his students that says, now no swims on mum. <laughs> and the students <laughs> find that the sign, when it falls off, they pick it up and it reads the same upside down as it did the right way up. And he sketched out some designs for a title plate for one of his books. Actually, they 
didn't get used in the end, um, but that had the words of the title running around in four directions with the letters interlocking at right angles so that, for example, uh, an E in a word running in one direction was also an M in a word running in another direction. Okay. Uh, and this sort of thing is, is kind of a staple part of some ambigrams as well. But what he didn't do was take the next logical step was of having parts of letters in one orientation correspond to whole letters or multiple letters in another orientation, which is what the ambigram artists of today kind of do a lot of. So this was... I'm, sorry, this I'm just thinking this is great in an audio format. We're going to have to put some links I, in our show we, notes, aren't we? Absolutely, <laughs> we're going to need pictures. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this was kind of late 60s. Because, I mean, Escher died in 72. So, But meanwhile, in the US, in the late 60s and into the 70s, we had the graphic artist John Langdon, he started experimenting with typographic designs that could be rotated. At this point, he just called them upside-down words. Uh, and his friend, the typographer Robert Petrick, joined in, and they kind of encouraged each other. At this point, we introduce, who the general mentioned earlier, Douglas Hofstadter. Now, he's one of these super-brainy polymaths, in the words of Wikipedia, a scholar of cognitive science, physics, and comparative literature. He and wrote a book called Godel Escher Bark, didn't he? Is that the right Hofstadter? The Eternal Golden Braid. That's the fella. Yeah, yeah. he's a he was a, so he was a big Escher fan. That was a 1979 Pulitzer Prize winning book, so it was very successful. Uh, so that's about cognition and intelligence and maths and symmetry. And he used a lot of Escher prints to illustrate some of the ideas in it. Pop culture side note, he's the son of the Nobel Prize winning physicist Robert Hofstadter, after whom the Big Bang Theory character Leonard Hofstadter is partially <laughs> named. Anyway, Douglas and one of his college mates had been playing around with making simple mirror symmetry word designs so not rotational but reflectional symmetry just as a kind of mucking about and he he met up with a puzzle designer called scott kim and they became friends and because hofstadter knew that kim was into typographical stuff he showed him these sketches whereupon kim whips out sheets of paper showing that he's been doing this as well only much better (laughs) and kim called his ones inversions so, because they kind of oh get more enthusiastic about it, he published a book of them in 1981. Now, he was clearly an Escher fan too, and he cites him as an influence in a short chapter on art at the end of the book. And Hofstadter wrote the foreword to Kim's book. So, it's all linked in together. And once Kim's book comes out, then Langton and Petrick, who previously didn't know about Kim or, or Hofstadter at all, they become aware of him, uh, and the, you know, there's other people doing this stuff as well, and so they all they all kind of uh, get in touch with each other. So, in 1984, Hofstadter coins the term ambigram for this type of design because uh, they, they just had their own little internal names for them, and that's the name that has kind of stuck and caught on. Now, in 1992. Langdon publishes a book of his work, uh, which is called Wordplay. In 1993, 
a chap called Richard Brown, who was a maths teacher, showed a copy of this book to his son Dan, who as a kid, <laughs> who as a kid had been into ambi- uh, into anagrams and crossword puzzles and codes and things like that. Uh, and Dan thinks it's great. Dan's when you some... mentioned the name Langdon earlier, I thought well, you see. Ellis. I can't remember. No, no, I'll, I'll, yeah, well, I'm imagining we it, yeah, but apparently, yes. At this point, Dan had recently graduated from Amherst College and was trying out a career in music. And in 1994, he commissions Langdon to create an ambigram for the cover of a CD he's try he's releasing called Angels and Demons. <laughs> can you see where this is going? Right. Um, by the way, among Escher's tessellation drawings, number 41 is a design of... Well, can you guess what it's a design of? <laughs> it, is angels. it demons and angels? It is, oddly enough. So uh, this young fellow, Dan Brown, he soon switched from music to writing... Whatever first, became of him, eh? His first book was called Digital Fortress, but after that he started a series for which he is best known, for the first one of which he reused that title, Angels and Demons, and the second one was called Deception Point, and the third one I think everybody knows is The Da Vinci Code. And all of these feature the symbologist character Robert Langdon, Langdon named in honour of John. Yeah, absolutely. Now, it's because of the Langdon ambigrams featured in Brown's books, I think, that the art form has become more well-known to the general public. Uh, There's now quite a community of designers, many of whom are in contact with each other through the power of the internet. Um, Void, you might want to put your fingers in your ears for a moment here. I'm in a Facebook group. This is keep he's he's biting his tongue. Um whose six hundred members include Langdon and Petrick and nominally Scott Kim, although he doesn't really participate in it, but lots of the ambigram artists on this group are Escher fans. And it's quite fitting that several of them have done ambigrams of Escher's name. And one Frenchman, Alain Nicolas who's into both ambigrams and tessellation, has actually managed to make a tessellation of Escher's name. So all these things looping back on each, on each other and also linking in with with what the general was talking earlier about, I, th- I think that's quite a nice sort of symmetry in itself. Well, if, um, if, if only the book had been called Angels and Devils rather than Angels and Demons and the same well, thing with the prince. Yeah, absolutely. Or, or if so, only demons on horseback were, the, were a thing. Well, yes, <laughs> quite. So it's the only thing that's a shame is that Escher didn't get to know about ambigrams because I think he would have approved and he would have joined in. Uh, funnily enough, Lots of Escher's work is kind of cited by and used by scientists and mathematicians, I mean, crystallographers and all sorts of people like that. But he really kind of put his hands in there and said, I am not a scientist. I am not a mathematician. Mm-hmm. Um, so people are always kind of asking him, what is the underlying scientific theory behind this and he's like, I'm just a layman I'm just I'm, I'm an artist <laughs> I drew some pictures mate I drew yeah. Some, yeah anyway I've 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 taken up 
enough time there. I think, Void, what about your clue? I'm sure you're itching and twitching to put the listeners out of their misery regarding that. My clue was four across. One, not still searching for hobby, question mark. And that's eight letters. Now, I like this because somehow he's managed to put both meanings of the answer into one cryptic definition in the surface. Because the answer was twitcher, which, of course, is a, some say, derogatory term for a bird watcher or, or people who go chasing after birds. And a hobby is the name of a type of bird. So if you're searching for a hobby, you might be a twitcher. But also, if you're twitching, you might not be still because of the movements you're making. So one not still is also one searching for hobby. One not still searching for hobby, twitcher. Works both ways. Lovely. Yes. Yeah, I'm glad that's true. It, it's, it's a lovely example of a non-obvious use of, um, of, of a, a definition for part of a, a double definition clue. It's... With a hobby is exactly not the kind of hobby you think it's going to be. Exactly. General, it's time for you to uh, to throw quiz questions at us. Uh, what have you got? Okay. Well, um, I think because we've been talking about uncertainty and things that are not hundred um, percent one thing or another, I I thought if you'd indulge me, I'll just I'll give you a probabilities question. That's okay. Oh, cripes. Right. Okay. So you, can, you can take you can take this as maths, or you can take it as a general knowledge thing. In that, on the face of it, there is a perfectly clear general knowledge answer, and you can decide which one you go with. So, right. So here's the question: um, Suppose you have a public health issue um, in which one in a hundred people um, are sufferers, or so they would be positive. Okay. Yeah. So suppose that it's a test that is 95% reliable. Oh, I yeah, oh, okay. me. Yeah, 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 all right. So if it's if it's a test is 95% reliable by definition, that means 19 times out of 20, it gives the correct result, uh, positive or negative. So uh, you take the test, you get a positive result. What are the chances that you are indeed a carrier of this condition? Ah, uh, I'd need to. I need to do some uh, some writing and thinking, which is not yeah. going to be great for an audio podcast. No, me neither. I mean, I I am aware that this is a known thing that trips people up, and yeah. What would your first answer be? The test is ninety five percent reliable, and you get the results. So it's five percent unreliable. I, I might start looking at it that way. So. Hang on, what's, what's the wording of the question? Uh, one in 100 people are, are positive. Uh, you take the test. It says you are one of them. The test is 95% reliable. What are the chances that that you are one of the people who are carrying this uh, this condition? Okay, so the obvious answer to jump to is 95%, which is going to be 100% wrong, I'm sure. I, I'm, well, I'm not going to say it's 100% wrong, because <laughs> that would be rather against the spirit of the question, wouldn't it? Um, but Dave, maybe, Dave do, you, do you want, do you want to disagree on this? Wrong. No, I, I, I agree that the answer is going to be not 95%. Fantastic. Okay, we uh, have covered all the possibilities here. <laughs> So, all right, let, let's let's work it out, okay? If you and, and the maths is easy, anyone, anyone 
has enough maths to do this, or anyone over the age of maybe 10. So by definition, if you test enough people, you can eventually group them into sets of 100 where 99 are negative and one is positive. That's just what I mean by being one in 100. Right. That's, that's carry. So let's suppose you've grouped everyone into these groups. Take one of the groups and imagine testing it. You've got one true positive in there. Uh, your test is 95% positive, so almost certainly that'll come back with a positive result. You've got you've then got 99 people who are negatives. The test is 95% reliable. That means it's 5% fallible. So out of 95 people, 99 people, you will get something like five false positives. Those are the ones where the 95% reliable test happens to fail. So out of those 100 people, you are getting five false positives, one true positive. So that means that you guessed that the odds are 19 to one on that you are a carrier. Actually, it's five to one against. Against, yeah. So, so, so basically, um, well, for you knew you were wrong, Dave. You knew he was wrong, but would you have guessed how wrong he was if we? If we, this is the thing. Is I mean, I, a very long time ago, I did get a B in in O level maths. Um, but my problem with maths was that I could do it, but very, very slowly. Um, so I probably would have got to the right answer with an awful lot of sitting and and and. You say, I mean, anybody over the age of 10 should be able to do the maths. It's being able to work out what bit of maths to do, I think, is the problem. Yeah. Well, it is. And, it, and the the, prob- the real problem is that our intuition is wrong on this. Because yeah. intuition says, obviously, it's 19 to 1 on. It, it's just, it just stands to reason. And you really have to have to, to put that intuition to one side and go through the maths and work it out properly. Um, so it, it and the problem is not so much that we can't do the maths; it's that we don't think of doing it. And this has tripped people up in real circumstances. You know, people who have been refused insurance cover because yeah. because they failed a a ten thousand to one test that said they'd got AIDS. But you know, they were the ten thousand and first person to take it. Somebody's going to get the false positive, and and that was them. But their life was ruined for years until they until they got a statistician. To argue why it was wrong. Um, okay, I'm going to give you um, a quick question on immunology. What does what what do blossom and immunology have to do with each other? Okay, we're not talking about a person called blossom, right? We're talking about the things you get on plants and flowers. I'm not. I'm not going to comment on that unless you want to make a guess. Oh, all right. Or are we talking some kind of linguistic etymological kind of? Uh... Well, what what does vaccination mean? What does what does the term come from? Oh well, it well, comes from the Latin word for cow. Yes, it does. Because um, of Edward Jenner and was it Jenner? Was it with it cowpox? Was Edward, Edward Jenner, seventeen ninety six. Middle yeah. aged, don't get cowpox. Yeah. So he and actually he wasn't the first person to notice it, but he was the first person to investigate it scientifically. Yeah. His so idea, Lady of... Mary. Wortley Montague uh, was spreading the idea of um, inoculation, no, variolation rather than vaccination a little bit earlier than that, wasn't she? That's exactly right. Variolation, injecting people with a small quantity of um, a pathogen in the hope that that triggers enough of a reaction not to kill the person, but to make them immune. So 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 the, the vaccination injecting you with something different 
of a related substance that gets the same reaction to the more serious condition. That that was the new thing. So Ed, Edward Jenner uh, picked this up. It, it was a country knowledge that milkmaids don't get smallpox. And he worked out, well, that's maybe it's because they get cowpox instead from the cows. And so he he did this very scientific experiment of grabbing the son of his gardener and injecting him with cowpox <laughs> and then injecting him with smallpox. And it, it genuinely proved the point uh, that if you injected yourself with cowpox, you would be immune from smallpox. And of course, Blossom was the name of the cow that provided ah. the very first vaccination. <laughs> so it was so, somebody's so this is, name. This is why he hates his bets when you said it's not somebody's name. Yeah. <laughs> you know, somebody, depending. Anyway, yeah, yeah. question three. Edward Jenner, um, so father of immunology, uh, founder of an entirely new strain of science. He was a fellow of the Royal Society, and he'd been a fellow of the Royal Society since 1789. That's seven years before he discovered this um, this link between cowpox and smallpox. So here's the question. What was the discovery that led to him being elected as a fellow of the Royal Society? Ooh. Now, the annoying thing about this is I watch a YouTube channel called Objectivity, which is all about the objects and notes and annals of the Royal Society. So... I bet I've actually had this told to me through the screen and I've forgotten it. So well, it's not Jenner. it's not about cows. Mm. Is it, it gonna be involve... a medicine or biology based topic? Uh, no, it involves another creature. I was so, gonna say, is it gonna be a kind of zoological and animal thing? It's an it's well it's a zoological thing. It's another creature that's, whose name begins with a C. Cat cow. Coelacanth. <laughs> was it the coelacanth? Ah, you got, no, well, it's cuckoos. 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 Oh. People, he found what cuckoos do because people had didn't know that cuckoos laid their eggs in other birds' nests, and um, but they didn't know what happens to the eggs of the host bird. Right. Okay. So I mean, Aristotle had, had written that it's obvious that the mother cuckoo comes along and swaps the eggs. Um, other people believed that it was the the host birds that they'd hatch all the eggs, but they liked the look of the cuckoo because it was big and strapping. And so they fed the cuckoo and starved their own birds. Right. Nobody worked out that what happens is that, that the baby cuckoo has a little horny pad on its at the top of its beak, and it uses that to push the other eggs out of the nest. And and Jen, so Jenna discovered this by the very scientific process of actually stopping to look at it. Of watching it, yeah. <laughs> of, of, of not taking Aristotle's word. So, you know, and this, this is a this is a huge, well, it's part of a huge transformation in science from uh, from learning what the ancients had, had studied. and Evidence-based uh, learning. Evidence-based learning. Go out and look at go, look at the world, uh, find, find the evidence, measure it, uh, form hypotheses, test them, and follow the evidence. If only yeah. we could do that a little more in everyday life. <laughs> Evidence-based policy. And another idea that Kate that was around was that it was that the, the reason you had baby cuckoos in other birds' nests was that male cuckoos went around mating with whatever other birds they liked, and that the, so all cuckoos 
were in fact the result of an extramarital affair between a male cook and another, and another bird. Hence the word cuckold. Oh. oh. That's a new one on me. That's, yeah, that's interesting. Okay. Uh, by the was... way, of course, another one of these things where on the other side of the pond they've got birds that have the same name as our European ones but that aren't the same species and don't do the same thing. So the, the Americans have got cuckoos that aren't cuckoos and don't do any of this stuff in the same way that the Americans have got robins that aren't robins. They're, they're not robins. Robin kind of they're just plainly not robin. Yeah. Not so robin. yeah. So we're, we're talking about European cuckoos here, folks. <laughs> if anyone wants to apply that epithet to the three of us, we probably won't admit <laughs> too strongly. <laughs> Uh, thanks for listening everybody you know what I'm going to say please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from good positive reviews we want them we'll have show notes at offgrid.tlmb.net we'll probably have lots of pictures this time as well of ambigrams and tessellations and all such such things otherwise you can say hello to us on twitter where I'm at skowingle and I'm at the void TLMB. Or, of course, you can leave a comment on the blog. That would be great. Uh, General, would you like to recommend any websites or Twitter accounts to the listener? I, I have a few recommendations. If you've enjoyed the kind of puzzles we're talking about, you should have a look at uh, the Guardian puzzles. You might like to look at Boatman as an example and look at Alan Connor's blog, which is where you'll find the Referendum Day puzzle. On Twitter, you might like to look at Boatman Cryptics, or there's one word, Boatman Cryptics, and there's a website, boatmancryptics.co.uk, which has a little more about Boatman. It's got some extra puzzles, information about talks and masterclasses and commissions. And there's a book, there's a book, Boatman the First 50, which contains 50 puzzles and stories behind them from wherever you buy books or signed copies from the website. I'm I believe it is alleged to be a great Christmas present. <laughs> I've heard as such. We will definitely check all that out. Thank you very much, General. And thanks to everybody, and see you all next time. Bye. Bye. Goodbye. Bye. Thank you for listening once again to Off Grid. If you have enjoyed it, then yes, please tell a friend, give us a review, a rating, a follow. That would be marvellous. In fact, if you gave us a review on Apple Podcast, you would make 100% difference because we only have one at the moment. So, yeah, go on. That'd be great. Thank you to Tease for our featured puzzle this episode. And thank you, as always, to the Trudy for our theme tune, Speedman. We will be back in two weeks. See you then. Goodbye. Dip, 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 dip.